and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today. Mitch, what have you been up to? I am rocking it, DJ. I am so excited to be with you yet again. So much going on in the film world, and I've got a whole bunch of outside projects, too, that are keeping me away from... Planet 5D, believe it or not. Oh, man. Welcome to the club. As soon as I'm done with this podcast, I am driving six hours, filming until 1 a.m., getting up at 7.30, filming again until 1 a.m., and then dying on Sunday. That is my complete plan for the weekend. It is going to be fun and awful all rolled up into one. Wowzers. It sounds like a craziness, man. Yeah, I've started packing last night, and um, hopefully I'll be out of here by... 10 a.m. if I'm lucky. It's not going to be great, but it'll be fun. There's going to be a lot of people there. We're doing some major special effects scenes, so that'll be cool. And uh, hopefully everything gets shot so I don't have to go back another weekend to take care of this project. (laughs) That's always the dilemma, isn't it? You want to make sure everything gets done so you don't have to go back. Yeah, and for those of you that schedule projects, it's never a good idea to calculate the exact amount of time and only uh, allocate that for the project because you inevitably go over I've only been on maybe one project where we were actually ahead of schedule that doesn't happen almost ever it's always behind never ahead so keep that in mind when you're scheduling maybe give yourself a couple extra hours here and there or a couple extra days of shooting time when you cram everything in those last few shots get rushed and rushing that means failure because yes. you don't pay enough attention and you're in a hurry, especially if you're shooting I, at 1 a.m. And it gets rough, too. Like if you're shooting with teenagers and stuff and you've got one of the SAG representatives on on set telling you that you can only go to 11 tonight. Oh, man. Yeah, I <laughs> avoid union jobs as much as possible because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, right. On that note, getting in trouble. Getting uh, in trouble. There were a few corrections from episode seven last week, and I've got those here. Uh, first up, I said that the A7S is an 8.8 megapixel camera. That is incorrect. This Sony A7S right here is a 12.2 megapixel camera, so keep that in mind. Also, I said that the Sony FS7 doesn't shoot 4K. That's also incorrect. The FS7 does shoot 4K internally. It does require an external recorder to shoot 4K raw, not an external recorder to shoot 4K. That's some of its smaller brothers. I also said that I don't think the 1DC records audio in 4K mode. Couldn't find a confirmation on this, actually, and I've talked to a few people, and most shoot audio separately from video with their 1DC, so I don't actually know if the 1DC shoots audio while... I can answer that. Mitch? I can actually answer something. Answer it. Uh, B&H loaned me a 1DC when they first came out, and I have quite a few uh, 4K audio... or clips that i have that have audio on them so it is using uh so that 3.5 millimeter jack does perform in video mode on 4k okay (laughs) now you're going to be picky uh i did not have an external microphone plugged in so it was using the built-in microphone yeah i would assume i'm gonna i'm gonna 
uh, qualify this. Yeah, it probably does record audio in 4K mode. So sure there does. you go, guys. That's the answers to those. Uh, thanks, Jonas, for sending in those corrections. If you guys run into anything else, a lot of times on this cast, I am going off of show notes and kind of memory here. So occasionally I get specs, ah. numbers, or prices incorrect. And no for way. those things, if you need to send in a correction or like to send in a correction or just want to tell me something, you can reach <laughs> me at dslrfilmnoob at gmail.com. You can also find information for this show on the subreddit. It's reddit.com slash r slash dslr. So go check that out. We'll be posting the show there as well as interacting with you guys if you want to kind of use a forum-based Reddit application. On that note... Let's move on to the news. Time for the news. First up on the news, we've got the release of USB 3.1. This is the predator postcessor, predecessor, not predecessor. Uh, the thing that comes after USB <laughs> 3.0. They didn't come up with USB 4 because they don't feel like it's enough of a change, but 3.1 basically doubles the speeds and brings USB up to about the speed of Generation 1 Thunderbolt drives. Uh, there are some tests available, and it looks like Tom's hardware was rating some S. SSDs together and getting speeds across USB 3.1 of up to 700 megs a second read-write with crystal disk mark. So, USB 3.1, Mitch, are you excited about this? Is this something you, well, you're a, a Mac guy. guy, so do you use Thunderbolt at all? Is that a thing? Oh, I, uh, is that a thing? Good I, golly, I use Thunderbolt all the time, yes, uh, because I am using an iMac, which has a Thunderbolt and a USB 3. Uh, so, yes, USB 3.1 would be very exciting. So if they're going to add that to the iMacs later on or, you know, whatever Apple devices. But uh, Thunderbolt is what I'm using, and it's incredible. Uh, I, d I have not yet gotten a Thunderbolt 2, which is I've – Again, I don't know the numbers on that, but it's like 10 times Thunderbolt 1. So having USB finally getting to Thunderbolt 1 version, that's cool. Now, that's do you awesome. have any devices in the studio that's actually taking taking advantage of that bandwidth? Well, I do have a Thunderbolt uh, RAID from GTEC sitting over behind my iMac, over right over there, uh, which I, you know, it's it's seamless. I mean, you just cannot tell that there is any delay getting anything off of that beast. Now, a few notes on USB 3.1. Uh, the cable is now reversible from what I understand, and I will clarify that with what I understand. I believe you can flip it upside down and right side up, and it will plug in without any issue. Also, I don't think there are any active electronics in USB 3.1 uh, as the original Thunderbolt cables used some kind of uh, chip that was in the cable itself in order to transmit data. And this looks like something sweet for, like Mitch said, an external RAID device. Uh, Dobro makes, or uh, Drobo, excuse me, Dobro's the guitar. <laughs> I always mess that up. Yeah. Uh, they make a, a bunch a of external enclosures, and this might be a great option for some of those things. I don't really have much in the way of the studio that uses that much bandwidth other than my server, so... It's not super exciting to me, but it's kind of cool. Maybe if we get well, memory cards that can actually be accessed at some of those high speeds. Well, that would be awesome, wouldn't it, to be able to have 
I mean, I don't think there's even a Thunderbolt uh, compact flash card reader yet. So. It would be kind of um, unnecessary because with Thunderbolt, you have so much bandwidth and right. a CF card, even the top-notch <laughs> CF cards, maybe if you're really lucky, the Lux, Luxor or Luxon, uh, I believe those get, what, 180 meg reads maybe? Right. That's mm-hmm. not even cracking – cracking the surface of the amount of bandwidth you have with thunderbolt or even usb right. so right it's uh it's kind of one of those things where the tool to to use the stuff is there before the stuff is actually there to work with the tool so so does that does this mean that there's a new cable that you have to have you can't uh, use an old usb cable i believe you can use a usb 3 cable or a usb 3.1 cable and the 3.1 cable is reversible. And I'm actually clicking on the link right now and looking at the pictures because I want to make sure that I'm not incorrect <laughs> on that. Uh, USB 3.1 does have some new standards. It looks like, hold on a second, what are they using here? They have, uh, yeah, it looks j- exactly like a regular USB plug. So. You can plug into those the same way with older versions of USB cables. It looks like the new version of USB 3 that's reversible is just the thin portion without the little box over the top of it. So you can flip it, you know, up and down, left and right or whatever. Okay, that Uh, makes sense. Yeah, the pictures here, and I'll copy those and put those in the show notes because that's probably something people want to see actually. Yeah, it's, it's much more, much more better. Good English there, Mitch, uh, if you can see what, what you're talking about. But yeah, the uh, the thing that they were running into in earlier versions is some of the units that use USB 3 or 3.1 were running from a onboard motherboard chip, and some of them are running from the Intel processor's internal controller. So I guess the issue there was that they were saturating the processor a little bit and using up a lot of bandwidth that the processor could have used other ways but with the onboard chip, it was sending the data in via a different stream, so they didn't have an issue with that. So that's kind of an interesting thing to note. Uh, it's still in development. You don't see this on a ton of boards. So we're not going to be super excited about USB 3.1 in the future until it becomes widely implemented in a yeah. lot of other devices. And I suppose yeah. it's the same thing with Thunderbolt. When they announced Thunderbolt, how long did it take <laughs> before... We started getting devices that were actually About capable a of year. using it. Yeah. yeah, it was insane. Uh, especially since the cord, like you said, had the chip in it. So you, you, they had all sorts of connection problems and people having to. I don't know. I'm not an engineer, so I don't know what all the trouble they had to go through. But well, there are still relatively few Thunderbolt equipped devices out there compared to USB three. Yeah, I think there are only a couple of PC options for Thunderbolt, and they are not officially supported because of some licensing agreement between Apple and um, Intel. But uh, right. they're out there, I guess, for some PC users. They're out there for most uh, Mac users with a newer system. There's some cool stuff. We still haven't gotten the promise of an external enclosure for graphics cards. That was one of the things that people were really excited about with the bandwidth of 
Thunderbolt was that we could have an external graphics card for processing and rendering. So maybe that'll right. come in the future. But uh, for now, USB 3.1, it's out there. It's coming eventually. And hopefully we'll see that in RAID units and some of these other attachable devices. Now, moving on. Used- oh, go I'm ahead. Gonna- Hold on a second. You're so fast. You jumped right in there so fast. Try to transition. Woo. I know. But uh, have you used a Drobo? Or do you... You mentioned Drobo earlier. Uh, yeah, I had one of their older units. It uh, crashed on me. It was uh, version 1 or version 2. It was a little shifty. Then I switched over to, well, I actually borrowed a version 3. Thankfully, and not thankfully, Drobo uses a proprietary <laughs> internal format. So if right. you ever have a motherboard that crashes on a Drobo, it's going to lock your data into those drives until you move the drives to another Drobo case. Once you put it in another case, all the access information and everything on the drives will tell the new unit how to look at the hard drives and get your information off there. So that's cool, but it is proprietary, so you can't just take it out and put it in any other RAID setup and expect your drives to work or to be able to rescue your data that way. Um on that note, the newer units are really solid. I like them. I've tested out uh, the 4Bay version 3 and had pretty decent luck with that. I don't have one in the studio. I borrowed one to rescue some stuff from an old one that died. So yeah. that's my experience with it. It felt pretty solid. They're, the units without hard drives now are down to a pretty reasonable price. I think it's uh, under $300, like 260 or 270 to buy a Drobo 4-bay unit, and about 400 maybe 500 to buy the 5- or 6-bay units. And for your desktop, you know, you can shove four 3-terabyte drives in there, use Drobo's proprietary setup, and now you have a pretty decent backup system that gives you really good access speeds. I think for people who don't want to dink around with setting up something like my server that's back there in the corner back there, it right. uh, it's a really hands-off experience you just put your drives in and it sets it up you plug it into your computer and you go uh there's no installing software there's no setting up allocations there's no raid z in the case of free nas is what i'm using for my server back there and you don't have to worry about all the other bits and pieces and assigning ip addresses and all that stuff so if you just need some kind of (laughs) hard drive redundancy on your desk with lots of storage the, the Drobos are a pretty decent option. Uh, the other thing that they do that some of the RAID configurations don't necessarily support as well is in a RAID configuration, most of the time they recommend specific hard drives. Uh, in the case of Western Digital, they have their red version and their some other colored name versions from some of the other manufacturers. The red and the greens are designed specifically to work with RAID applications because of the way the heads park when the drives go into idle. With uh, Drobo, you don't have to worry about that because it takes care of all of the hard drive controls internally. So because of that, you can get away with using cheaper hard drives. You can go get some Hitachi drives or some Seagate. I mean, I, I guess I would not recommend Seagate as much because I've had some issues with Seagate hard drives. Uh, but 
you can use off-the-shelf hard drives, and you can get away with it. You can still kind of get away with that in RAID, but um, if you're using, like, the FreeNAS server I'm using back there, if I were to just throw really cheap hard drives in there, uh, sometimes they won't wake up when the the RAID powers back up again, and they'll be slower than the rest, and it'll sense it as a drive failure or a drive uh, misread or something like that. And luckily, it's smart enough to usually correct that, but sometimes it requires a reboot, and... That could be a hassle if you're in a production situation. You want to use the See, slightly more expensive drives. See, that's that's the thing that drives me absolutely bonkers about RAID. Is, is it like you got to have a college degree to understand RAID and NAS and all those other great buzzwords you just threw out there? Uh, I don't want to learn that stuff, which is why I ended up buying the Drobo in the first place. Now, I don't currently use the Drobo anymore. I was on a version 2 unit. Yeah, and the thing that really drives me crazy about the fact is that is it's loud, it's noisy. The damn thing's got a loud fan. Yeah, um, and and the the things that I loved about it was the fact, like you said, you just plug it in, it works. If a drive fails, it tells you to pull it out, and you pull it out, you put another drive in there, and then it goes. It's and they can all be different sizes. They don't have to be the same brand. It just works. One of the but, things you can do to reduce the noise out of that thing is they actually sell uh, special fans, muffin fans, that you can replace the fan in that unit with. And I don't want to say silent, but they're mostly silent running. So the fans that they use in their like $260 units are they're cheapo fans. They just go grab any fan off there. They've got bearings in them and they make noise. But they have these uh, floating fans that you can get from Newegg or from Amazon or whatever, and those fans don't produce very much noise at all. The only noise that's really created by them is from the air actually hitting another surface as opposed to the bearings rotating. So if you have a area that you want quiet and you don't want that kind of computer noise, that's one option. Uh, the other option is, and it's not do- uh, Drobo, is to go with uh, another consumer model of this sort of drive storage device. And there's a couple companies that make fanless units. Uh, they use some of Intel's newer processors that don't require a fan cooling system. So that's something you could do. Or I've seen people that are really crazy about noise and they actually use a fanless power supply. They go get one of those all-in-one motherboards with an Atom processor on it that doesn't require a fan. And then they shove that case full of hard drives and they use that. So that's completely fanless. The only thing is, is when you start going that route, you're sacrificing your amount of computing power for the lack of fans. So the trade-off is you could have a faster server and air cooling, or you can have a slower server and have no fans at all and just convection cooling. So those are things you can do. Also, air conditioning is a thing. Uh, (laughs) If you have a house with a lot of stuff, you can air condition the crap out of it. If you've ever been in the server center, it is cold as heck in there because they are cooling the equipment and they don't care a bit about the peoples. That's right. Moving on down the line here, I've got the Flex Tilt Head. This is Eldecron's latest announcement. And for $99, this little guy basically allows you to tilt up to a 5.5-pound camera several inches above the surface plane. It's fat enough that you can rest a camera on it. You can mount this to a tripod. And 
What's kind of sexy about this, actually, and this is the part that I like, is that you can bring your camera out and point it down at the ground using this little flexible adapter. That is a pretty handy feature if you're trying to get something on the ground, maybe a product shot laying on the ground, or maybe someone looking up into the camera, maybe they're gazing at the stars, something like that. That's cool. The only thing is, it's $99. What do you think about this guy, Mitch? I'm pretty impressed. Edelkrone makes some awesome products. Uh, they're well-built. They're smooth. They're mostly aluminum, I think. They don't do much plastic in their world. And I can see quite a bit of use for this. I'm excited to get one. They're going to send us a couple for Planet 5D. Ooh. And, um, well, they are a sponsor, okay? <laughs> um, but I, I mean, my wife and I actually use something that they sent to us last year. Uh, she and I go to color guard tournaments that my daughter is in, and and it's it's a little arm thing that you unfold it, and it has a you know a plate at the top where you can attach a camera, and she just sits with that on on her knee and she films. So she's got a steady platform because they don't they don't allow you to bring tripods or monopods into these things because they're worried about people i guess banging each other on the head you know there's big fights all i'm kidding i don't know i got yelled at at the last tournament because i i grabbed a tripod because i was going to film my daughter god forbid that you bring a tripod man they i mean the judge came over and was like oh you can't have a tripod and i'm like ah. you know have you seen those um little vacuum bag systems uh usually yeah, if you're if you're at a, an event like that and you need to attach your camera to something and you, you're not allowed to have a tripod, you put the vacuum bag around like the resting pole where it tees off you know, the, the thing that keeps you from falling off of the stands. And right. then you pull vacuum on that and then it's got a little quarter 20 on the top and you attach your camera. And now it's not meant for a ton of weight, but it's enough to hold like a DSLR with a lens on it. Or yep. there's also those uh, Gorilla Pods, if you've messed around with those. I don't recommend their rating system for Gorilla Pods. I know a lot of people that have broken lenses and, and things like that because they thought, oh, this says DSLR and it's obviously it rated hold to hold it. But don't do that. Go get the biggest one they make and then wrap that around as many times as you can and maybe use a zip tie to hold the legs on just in case. And then you could use something like that as well and it's not as conspicuous. The cool thing about their really big Gorilla Pod is that you can actually bend it and set it up as kind of a shoulder rig where you put one leg on your shoulder, you bend the two arms down, and you can hold your camera like this. So if you're filming something, you want to walk around and you need a little bit of stabilization. That's also something that's kind of cool that can be done with the Gorilla Pod. For those of you listening on auto audio podcast, you just totally missed a very animated DJ trying to pretend to do a Gorilla Pod on his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. So, so tune into the live video versions when you can. You can find those on dslrfilmnoob.com or where good podcasts are sold. Now, moving on down the line here, <laughs> uh, we've got this little lifting thing here, and I'm holding this up for the people that are actually watching. This guy is pretty cool. Uh, basically, what it does is it allows you to bring your camera up off of your slider. If you ever worked with a slider and you're doing a bunch of shots, eventually you're going to try and do that thing where you are close to a subject and you slide backwards to reveal something. 
Or if you're getting really classy, and I've got a link to this in the show notes because some of you may not have heard of it. I call it a Hitchcock zoom, but it's actually called a dolly zoom where you zoom to stay with the character in the same framing, but you actually slide backwards as you're doing that. Well, what you end up getting is that weird kind of vertigo separation of the character from its surroundings, like they're kind of floating there in focus while everything else is moving about them. And those shots are really cool, but the issue you run into is that you actually get to see the end of your slider if you're not careful, especially if it's a long slide. With these little riser plates, and you can buy a two-set on eBay right now for about $40, you can uh, stack these, you basically attach them to your slider, and then you put your head on top of that, and that brings you up about... 8 inches, 10 inches off of the deck of your slider, which means that when you're sliding back, you don't end up seeing the end of your slider in the shot. This is also cool if you're trying to pan as well as slide, because when you come around at the end of the slider, sometimes you'll catch the slider, but by lifting it up a little bit, that saves you from having that issue. Now, I know some of you will say, what if I just use a dolly? Then I don't have to worry about it. Well, that's true. But a lot of us don't have the time, the space, or the funding to have a dolly with us all the time. And for those of you who don't, a $40 upgrade can get your camera clear off the deck of your slider and keep the slider completely out of the shot. Mitch, have you used a slider? Are you a slider user? Is this something you might be interested in? Um, actually, I do have a Philip Bloom pocket dolly that anybody wants to buy off of me. I'm getting rid of that, so just let me know. Um, Is that I, one of the Kessler units? Yeah. I, yeah or Kessler, yeah. You know, I've, I've played around with those. Uh, not to be too mean, but the friction system on there is just not for me. Yeah, I, I tried to use it, and, and people claim that it's amazing and it does a great job, but it's really catchy. Like, you're trying to do the, the deal, and you're trying to move it, and... I always ended up with jerky motion out of it. I know they. You're say, not helping me sell this thing, DJ. Come oh. on. <laughs> I, they're great. They're the best slider I've ever used in my entire life, bar none. Slider, yeah. awesome. Yeah. No, I actually, but I do have a couple, and and you know, you you can't have too many of them, but sometimes you have too much. But you know, I haven't I haven't purchased the riser like the one you've got. But another reason for that uh, flex tilt from Edelkrone is to do exactly the same thing. And I put a note in the show notes this morning because there used to be a slider arm that the guys at Rhino built, and I can't find it on their website, so I don't know if they're doing it anymore. But there there are quite a few different solutions for getting your camera out of the – or the slider out of your picture. So yeah, I was anyway, looking I, around all over. There is a company um, – I think it's – I believe they call it the Poly Dolly – and they use a a rotating heavy disc as a flywheel inside of a geared system on wheels. And then the camera actually sits on a big arm. And instead of having a slider like this, it actually has a trough a similar to a small dolly that allows it to move back and forth. And their arm is actually what keeps everything out. But this is a – the their units uh, – $5,000 system. It's really it sexy. Really? And I, I, as soon as I saw it, I, I was uh, in love. But uh, it's made by a European company. You don't see them very often in the States. They're really great if you're just doing like inside product shots because you can set this thing up all day and slide into cars, you know, slide along uh, items. Oh, oh it, and it's beautiful motion. 
And speaking of which, one of the things that really makes the slider that I have in the show notes my favorite slider, and this is the uh, Shark S1 slider, is the flywheel system on it. Uh, this has a basically a, a pulley system that goes all the way across that attaches to your deck as you slide the camera. And you have to spin up the flywheel and stop the flywheel to stop motion. So when you actually get started sliding, you're fighting the pulley and the flywheel to get it rolling, which means you have a completely smooth start as you start to slide. And as you stop, it's the same thing. You have to defeat the spinning flywheel in order to slow down. So your slow down to stops are perfectly smooth as well. And you can even have two people operating this where you have somebody just touching the flywheel a little bit to slow it down and it really gives you beautiful slides and moves compared to some of the other options. Canova has a slider that was really popular for a while that uses roller bearings and the roller bearings are what made that a really exciting proposition but because you had to have a very smooth arms in order to get the camera started and get the camera stopped, you often ended up with shots where you had jerky motion either at the beginning or the middle, or you had to try and do it three or four times, or you had to be really stable. And that's one of the things they tried to come up with with that whole resistive system that they use in the Kiesler uh, sliders is that they are Kessler. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. You're fine. Uh, but the, yeah. the thing is, the res- they use a resistive element in order to do that. And while that does provide a little bit of friction to push against, it isn't nearly as elegant as the flywheel. The trade-off is that you have a big five and a half, six-pound flywheel attached to your slider. So if you have to carry something around all day and then set it up and tear it apart again, you are carrying this extra heavy weight with your camera. But it's a very sexy way to do that sort of a move without having to get that whole like jerky motion thing that you would run into. You could, of course, use one of the motorized systems as well. Right. Uh, but right. the tracking motorized systems have their own difficulties and learning curves to get used and- to. And extra weight and everything else. Yeah, yeah, so I think it's it's really your personal preference. I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but I definitely will say I love my shark slider. That thing comes with me everywhere. And I have the extended model that goes, I believe, uh, 1,400 millimeters or 1,500 millimeters, which is, you know, like four feet or five feet. That's a <laughs> That's a great slide. That, that gives you uh, plenty of room to move. And that brings me to one other criticism that I have, and this is kind of going back a little bit to the flex tilt. Did you watch their promo video? Yes. Every single shot is a slider shot all the way through. I watched it twice just to make sure. It had, well, I like <laughs> slider shots, and that's fine. Folks, avoid doing too much because it just gets weird after a while. You can do sliders, that's great, and use them appropriately. Make sure that you use them sparingly when needed and they are important to the shot. But that particular promo video is slider shot after slider shot after slider shot after slider shot. And then what do we finish with? A slider shot. When are you just going to have a stationary shot? Do we have to slide and have emotion in every single shot? I don't think we do. That's not necessarily a thing. I don't know. That's just personal preference. But, and I get you. I, I agree with you 10,000%. But 
uh, Edelkrone makes sliders, so they want to sell you one. I know, and I, when I was typing these notes up, I <laughs> I put it in and then I took it out again. Like, is it a contractual obligation that they use their slider for every single shot since they make a slider? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. that's the thing. It, but it would it would be nice if they really just used proper filmmaking etiquette, if that's the right way to say it. That's not etiquette isn't really the right word I'm looking for, but. Uh, you can't really say like you yeah. can't use a slider and there's no right way or wrong way to use a slider exactly well there is but um there isn't a, a number of times you can or can't use a slider it's just that when you slide every single time it becomes less yeah. interesting and just becomes right. a thing that's going on all the time when you slide specifically you know like i mentioned the hitchcock zoom if you ever watch any of hitchcock's films whenever a character like realizes that something's going wrong they do that th- they do the hitchcock zoom where they slide out and they zoom in at the same time and that that is used specifically to draw importance to that particular shot or when they're you know uh, in the bathroom at the Bates Motel and the you know she's taking a shower they do a few slide shots and those shots are designed specifically to make those scenes more intense but then they cut back to stationary shots again right. so you know you're not just doing sliders and dolly shots and, and moving shots all the time I've seen some of these newer films like uh, Cloverfield and some of that stuff. And I know they're supposed to fall into uh, sort of the found footage category. But honestly, I don't want my camera moving around all the time. It makes me a little bit nauseous. I want to have some stationary camera, then some moving camera, then some stationary camera. And use it when it seems like it's appropriate as opposed to every single shot. Yep. Amen. I I agree with you a thousand percent. The thing that my pet peeve is this current belief, and it's been going on for a while, the shaky video. Like, if I move the camera a whole lot, then that's like somebody walking. Well, we don't, you know, our brains do some image stabilization for us when we're walking. We don't have to have shaky cam all the time. So people out there, stop it. Yeah, shaky cam is awful. I have That's nothing good rant. to say about that. Um, <laughs> continuing on down the line, the next one's actually yours, Mitch. What can Yay! you tell me about this Airbnb meets Film Gear camera lens? Well, Air, this this uh, Hugh wrote this up for me, Hugh Brownstone on Planet 5D. But camera lens, that's L-E-N-D-S, as opposed to lens, which is a very good pun. I like the way they did that. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, is a brand new site. Uh, it's currently in beta, and Hugh compared it to Air Airbnb, which started out many, many years ago. But imagine you and I have gear. Like I have this Philip Bloom pocket dolly that I don't use very often. Maybe there's somebody in St. Louis that would love to borrow that or rent it from me, but I don't have a way of getting that information out. So Air Lens, now I... <laughs> Suddenly doing what what he was talking about. Uh, CameraLens.com is a place where you can go, register, list your gear, and people in your local area can then rent from you. Nice. It is. It's a great concept. Uh, it's you know it's sort of like like Hugh was talking about Airbnb. I mean, you're not putting hotels out of business. But people can rent out their rooms that are not being used, right? So why not rent out some of your gear? Now, I know a lot of guys on Twitter that rent their reds or their 
expensive cameras. And, you know, I, mean, I see all the time. Somebody will say, oh, my camera just came back. If you're interested in running it, let me know. Uh, so the deal here is that they take 30% to cover insurance and stuff like that, uh, the setting up the website. I mean, it's the Apple 70-30 motive yeah. that they've got going on here. But it gives you a great location to list your gear. People will be coming to your either studio or your house. I mean, if you're running so stuff is this a, your house. There's no mailing to this? This is all someone no. physically actually comes to your place to borrow Correct. this stuff? Correct. So it's it, I mean, it's got to be local. It's got to be somebody that can get to your house or to your studio where you have your gear to be able to come pick it up, and then they have to bring it back. Now, there are some guarantees, which is why – and I, you'll have to go to their website to read all the details. But you know, if somebody trashes your camera or your Philip Lynn pocket dolly or whatever, then there's money available to replace that gear for you, which is comes out of their 30%. So – there's there's some details. so there's kind of some built-in insurance basically right. so that right. people don't damage your stuff because right. i do rent out my gear on occasion but for the most part my gear actually gets rented out in a form of them hiring me i <laughs> have my rate and then i have my rate plus equipment and so honestly the most most of the uh, efforts where my equipment is shown as rented is because they're hiring me plus they're paying the extra money to have my equipment come with me. Uh I do lend my stuff out to projects in the area but I'm very picky about who I lend it out to and what I charge them depending on their project and what they're working on. I also have dummy cameras and I, I don't maybe dummy's not the right term. I have really affordable cameras that I lend to those people with, that I don't think will be able to pay me or be able to compensate me in appropriate manners that are working on a small project. The Canon EOS M is it a good example? I have a complete kit for that. The whole thing's under like $1000, so if they break it it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. Right. But I think this CameraLens.com is is a great concept. I, I'm hoping to see that they move forwards because, especially in areas where there aren't good places to rent. Now, of course, you could go to LensRentals.com or LensPro to go, which is one of my favorites. Um, pick up all sorts of gear. They deliver via you know FedEx. Yeah. I use um, borrowers, and it's usually pretty decent to get uh, your lens in on a timely manner and have it for your project. And they're really good about sending out replacements if something breaks. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot of great services now. Uh, I think this idea – I mean it's, it's sort of like a Craigslist just for camera gear. It's kind of cool though if you think about it. I have a lot of gear, as you can see behind me, and yeah. that gear – is sitting here gathering dust when I'm not using it. I use right. it, but it's a one of those things where it's used per project, uh, whatever I'm working on, and sometimes it doesn't see the light of day for a couple of months. And if that was earning me, you know, three or four hundred dollars on the side, well, I'm not using it. That right. would probably be some extra cash that I could buy some more crap that I don't use. That's right. Um, I've actually registered, and I'm going to start using this uh, because. You know, I do have gear that's sitting around not being used. And if I can get somebody, it's it's also not only just helpful for you, but it's helpful for the people that don't want to go buy gear. They can't afford to buy gear. Maybe they don't want to pay an expensive rental. So, you know. Well, there's also the, the opportunity to test out stuff. 
A lot of yeah. times if there's a lens that I've kind of been jonesing after or a piece of equipment that I really want, but I'm not sure if it's right for me, I'll go the rental route and play with it for a little while and decide whether or not it's what I really need before I actually spend all the monies and buy it. And you can rent cameras, lenses, and stuff like that for, well, what are the rates on this guy? Do, do you have a list of rates for? Or for, is, it, is it determinate by the person that's actually lending out their gear? What they, what they try to do is that when you go through the process of saying, oh, I've got a Canon 70 to 200, you know, blah, blah, blah lens. Okay. They actually have a mechanism to try to give you an idea of what the proper rental rate should be for that in your area. It's kind of cool. Huh. So they've, they've you know, you can obviously change the rate if you don't like their recommendation. You get to pick the rate. So, you know, maybe if you put your stuff a little bit lower than everybody else's, maybe they'll rent from you, you know, so there's that kind of game stuff that you can play. But I, I, I'm just really excited about the ability to put that gear that we have sitting there gathering dust to use. And I think it's I think it's brilliant. I actually I live in an area where I'm probably one of the few people that owns this kind of equipment. So maybe I'll give it a try and see what happens. Maybe someone will actually come visit me as opposed to me having to send my stuff out uh, six hours to somewhere else. All right. Yeah. Moving on down the line, speaking of lenses, uh, Sigma is at it again. Sigma is basically covering the entire gamut of prime lenses that you would probably want. They started out with the 50mm f1.4, the 35mm f1.4, and of course the 85mm f1.4. And now it looks like they're going to be covering the 24mm range with the Sigma 24mm f1.4. It's going to be priced at about eight forty nine for retail release, and it'll probably come down a little bit after it's been out for a little while. This is compared to Canon's twenty four millimeter offering, which is over sixteen hundred dollars. Now, when I say Canon's offering, that's the Mark II. No one really cared for the twenty four millimeter f one four from Canon Mark One, and you can get that for sub eight hundred dollars on eBay. For that reason, but are you excited about the 24 millimeter f1.4, Mitch? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Is that because you're not a prime lens user? I, I, I probably should be. I, I was more interested in the 11 to 16 or whatever it was we talked about last week. Um, I, I have a question for you. I, I'm curious about, and I was starting to do a little research, but I didn't get into any information. They call this the art series. Is this, I mean, is it, is it sort of an, is that just a brand name or is, is there something different to make it artsy? There's a couple of different things. Uh, their art definition was started when they came out with their lens adapter. So I don't know if you've seen this device, but it basically plugs into the lens itself and allows you to program and set parameters for the lens. Uh, in the early release, if you remember, they had a 50mm f1.4 that wasn't very popular among Canon shooters because it had focusing correction issues they had no way to fix that in the lens so you had to send your lens in 
to Sigma and get it back. And if you got right. a good one, you kept it. If you got a junk one or one that was shifty, you, you had to dink around with it a bunch. You had to set your focus controls in your Canon camera. And there are lens calibration settings in some of the higher-end uh, Canon cameras that allow you to set uh, focus range and stuff like that. So you can adjust the, the micro-focus on those a little bit. But with their art version, you can actually plug it into their, I think the controller is like 250 or $300, and you can program the lens specifically for your camera and get it set up exactly right wow. so it gives you the option to really tweak your camera and your lens compatibility to make it just so they cool. also added some other features if you remember sigma's earlier lenses had that kind of um weird coating you know what i'm talking yeah. about it was like it was like somebody spackled paint on it and then like wiped it off really fast and it had little globs of stuff on it. Well, with their art version, they've made it shinier, better, more uh, pristine looking. They've added some like uh, better rubber to the grip and they've added a, a better finish material so it's nice and smooth as opposed to that weird kind of matte finished thing that they had. The other ones almost felt like you were holding something that had powder on it. Uh, the new ones feel pretty nice in the hand. They've got some new technology in there as well as far as uh, coatings for their lens elements and stuff like that. The rest of that, you know, it's branding. Right. Tamron and uh, Tokina and some of these other ones, if you look at the name of their lens, they'll have, you know, the 24 to 70, and then they'll have the AT-X-R-LC-VD. And you're like, well, is my lens contagious? Should I, you know, put it in a clinic or something, you know, get it a shot? It's, what do these mean? And they're all, you know, like light dispersing or vibration control or, you know, all these other uh, weird terms for the things that are inside the lens as opposed to just saying, here's our 24-millimeter F1.4. So, eh, you know the labeling and the art thing it it is what it is if you're going to use the connector and stuff that's cool if you're not honestly sigma has gotten most of the bugs out of their focusing system so most of these new lenses out of the gate are are pretty good you don't really have so are the you issue. excited about this one i am sort of excited if i hadn't already bought the canon 24 millimeter f1.4 mark ii I would have jumped on this guy. This is a really good price, eight forty nine for a twenty four millimeter f one four. That's sexy, and I would want one, except that I already own one. Now, yeah. if I go check the used market and I find out that my used twenty four millimeter f one four is worth sixteen hundred dollars used, I will sell that and buy this because <laughs> it's one of those lenses in my kit that gets used infrequently. I use it for certain shots, but it's not one of those things where if I had a less expensive but still quality model, I would be suffering immensely because of it. A lot of the primes are that way. My 51.2 and my 51.4 get used quite a bit, but my 35mm f1.4, it gets used infrequently. My 24 gets used even less frequently. My 135 f2 gets used all the time. My 85.18 gets used on a semi-regular basis, so... You kind of have to value your primes based on how much work they actually perform for you. And for me, if I had the choice coming out of the gate to spend 1600 bucks or $849, unless the reviews of this lens were awful, I would just go with the 849 And I think that's actually where Sigma has won. If you look at their 50 f1.4, their 35mm f1.4, and their 85mm f1.4, they're all 
basically several hundred to like 600 or more dollars underneath of Canon's offerings in those categories, minus the uh, 50 millimeter F1.4, but their 50 millimeter is a considerably better performer than the Canon 50 millimeter F1.4. So, you're a lens geek, aren't you? I love my lenses. I have <laughs> lots of them. And you know everything there is to know about them. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that. There are always new <laughs> things to learn. I don't know a ton about uh, optic technology as far as the manufacturing process goes and as far as the whole like measuring of focal bend and stuff like that. Like I have no idea how that 11 to what is it 11 to 24 I believe F4 right. how that right. will correct internally to take care of curvy lines. I know I it's possible know. but it you almost you can't just use a round element to do that because if the elements rounded it wouldn't correct the curve on the sides. You have to use almost like a not a geometric because that wouldn't work either. You'd have to use some sort of like um, oblong shape in order to correct for it. So when you get into that sort of technology, I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a light dispersion expert, but if you want to know about like how the lenses work and stuff like that, you know, I have most of Panasonic's and Olympus's lenses now, and now I have well, and I've always had most of Canon's lenses. So I can tell you about all those. Yeah. Yes, you can. And you do every week. Oh, man. All right, moving on down the line here before Mitch Lenz shames me. Uh, <laughs> Thomas is at it again. They've released an update for the Shogun. Uh, the firmware update now provides for 4K playback. There's also a few bug fixes in here. Looks like they've uh, fixed occasional playback issues. Uh, there is still a bit of a delay when you're using your headphone jack on your Shogun while monitoring video, but at least you can play back your 4K video that you recorded into the unit. Uh, they've also taken care of a few clip issues, and they fixed some naming problems that they were having. They've changed some of the settings to improve the calibration of the screen, and they have fixed a few timecode issues. Uh, playback is probably the most notable thing to take from this, though. Uh, when you first got the Shogun, you were able to record, but not play. Now you can play and right. record, which makes it a little bit sexier. Yeah, it's, it's a nice unit. I have yet to actually get my hands on one. Uh, they looked really cool at NAB last year. And I'm sorry, you're going to miss out on NAB this year. I mean, they might have another naked lady in their booth like they did last year. Well, she wasn't naked. She had uh, paint on her body. Body paint. Yeah, yes. Yeah, she yeah, was. Yeah, uh, awesome. For those of you who didn't go to NAB, they had a gal oh. that was basically painted in that latex body paint uh, to look as though she were a ninja. And uh, that was pretty much the only clothing that she was wearing. So, yeah, that was a thing. That was it, it attracted a lot of viewers and a lot of photographers there to their booth. Uh they also have their giveaway. If you do make it to NAB, make sure you stop by their booth every so often because there's only probably 60 or 70 people that put in for their raffles, and they have a raffle usually every four hours. In fact, uh, last time I was there, Mitch and I were basically standing around waiting for them to draw the next monitor right. out of the hat. And you might not win, but your odds are pretty good when it's a 60 or 70 people to one as opposed to, you know, the lottery or something like that. I, I give the folks at Atomos a, a lot of grief for those uh, young ladies up on stage, but it, it did attract attention. And, and there aren't, they're not the only vendor that does stuff like that. I remember going to NAB a couple of years ago. I think it was the first year I went. 
and the red booth, they had people doing live tattoos. So if you wanted a tattoo right there while you were in Vegas, you could get it done in the like red an actual booth. tattoo. Yeah, they were, had tattoo artists there and you could pick and they did it for free. I'm like, no, Whoa. I don't think so. But, you know, they, there are all sorts of gimmicks to get people into your booth. So it's not just Atomos that does that. And and I really like their stuff. Uh, so don't don't think I'm degrading them in any way. And yes, they are a Planet 5D sponsor. OK, one other thing to note that I forgot to read out of the spec list here is that they have added independent recording controls and mute for the left and right analog channels. Uh, this is a really good feature, actually, if you're using your Shogun for audio recording. Being able to change the levels independently of the left and right channel means that you have actual control over some of this. You still get uh, the digital channels that come in via the SDI connectors, so you can record the audio from there, but you still have the two analog inputs on your Shogun. I believe that's also the same for the Ninja. The Ninja and the new whatever. What's the new name of the next Ninja? The Ninja... Samurai or ninja fighting yeah, samurai. sword? <laughs> samurai was right, I believe. Uh, yeah, the ninja has that feature as well, so you can independently control audio. It's pretty good if you use it in combination with something like a Juice Linger Beach Tech adapter because it's a 3.5 millimeter input. Uh, I'm actually not sure on the Shogun. Is it a 3.5 millimeter input as well, or does it have uh, the mini XLR inputs? I'm sorry, I don't know. I haven't used the Shogun either, guys. I have used the Ninja. The Ninja just has a 3.5 millimeter input, and you can right. combine those with a Beach Tech or Juice Link device, and then you can get phantom power out of those and XLR control and then run it directly into your device. That's really good if you're a Canon 5D Mark III shooter because the Canon 5D Mark III doesn't send audio via the HDMI cable. So when you're recording, you're just recording the video only and none of the audio that the camera is capturing. But if you use the 3.5 millimeter input for that device, you can actually use it as a full-fledged video plus audio recording unit. So that's a handy thing to think about if you are in the market for external recorders. That's that's a great point. I really hadn't thought about using it for audio. Yeah, the uh, I believe – dang, I can't remember the name of it now. There's a company that makes a really good audio recorder that also does video as well. And it's I, I think it's sound devices, but I might be wrong on that. Uh, their unit has XLR inputs and a video capture uh, unit as well, but it's like $6,000 or $5,000. Yeah. It's, it's really spendy. Right. But if you basically combine your Ninja with one of these XLR adapters, especially like the Juice Link, because even though I completely dislike and hate the controls on all Juice Link devices – you you need to do better, man. I've told you this in person many times. We've had this discussion, and you always kind of just say, "Well, that's what people want." So I don't know. But if you, uh, yeah. But the audio in that unit is really good. Like the the power amps and everything are top notch. It does great with their audio path. You hook one of those up. You hook up your gear. You have XLR inputs. You have phantom power. Now you have a very capable all in one field recorder that does video and audio simultaneously in the same box and you don't have to rely on the independent audio controls built into the ninja because now you have actual knobs to control the audio for those devices with uh, juice links uh, riggy r333 that particular unit even does the thing where it mixes one channel down to the other channel so you can bring in three devices and have all of those mixed into two mono 
channels going into the left and right recording. So that way you have one at a higher level and one at a minus, I believe, 8 dB level. If there's right. a peaking on one channel, you can right. revert to the other one as your safety track. So that's a pretty handy thing to have as well. Right. You could also combine it with something like the Tascam DR60D right here that gives you four tracks of recording as well. So that would be another option, but then you're not doing it internally. You're doing it externally, and that's a whole other deal. Yeah. Another bonus to uh, Atomos for using real product names. Yes, actually, it is. <laughs> uh, the reason I can remember Ninja and Versus Shogun, Shogun. Yeah. is because they have a name as opposed to yeah. a number. Yeah. All right, moving on. Moving on down the line. Uh, Tokina has a few lens announcements here, and I'm going to cover both of these real quick here. We've got, first up, and this is a cinema product, so it's a little expensive. This is the Tokina 50-135mm to mm T3.0 zoom lens. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the T versus F, it basically just is a better calculation of the light loss as it goes through the camera as opposed to just the aperture opening. So that's why it's a T3.0 instead of F2.8. This is going to be a $4,499 lens, but it will come in a PL or EF mount. It has some great stuff like being parafocal for one. So if you're zooming in and out, you don't have to worry about your focus shifting. This yeah. is created with optics that are claimed to be 4k ready i'm not sure what that means but it probably means the optics are good uh tokina does some good stuff with their lenses mitch you see anything in here that's super important that people would probably want to know about Uh, the price is is pretty decent you know if you compare it to some of the other quote-unquote full cinema lenses Uh, the thing I, i i i wanted to ask you about this because the 4k ready issue uh, I've had a couple of people ask me, well, if I'm going to shoot 4K, do I really have to buy a whole bunch of new lenses or can I just use my old ones? Honestly, I'm going to say you don't need to buy new lenses. For the most part, if you think about the resolution that you're shooting with a DSLR camera, as an example, what's your resolution? Well, you're dealing with a, a 24 megapixel sensor or a 16 megapixel sensor or a 18 megapixel sensor, you know, all in that range. And the lenses are perfectly capable of resolving that. Your 4K footage is something in the range of uh, 8.2 or 8.8 megapixels, roughly. Um, Those are off the top of my head, guys, so don't send in corrections. I'm just (laughs) trying to remember. But anyway, it's far less than the megapixel that the camera is rated for itself. In the case of the... uh, I'm looking at the GH4 right now across the room. The GH4 is a 16 megapixel sensor, and the lenses that come with it are perfectly capable of resolving 16 megapixels. So there's no reason why that lens can't also do just fine for 4K video. That's the way to look at it when you're thinking about 4K-ready lenses. Now, when we start getting into higher resolutions than that, let's say Canon's new 5DS, that's a 50 megapixel sensor, and Canon's already kind of said in some not press releases, but interviews with some of their product designers and development team that they are going to be producing 50 megapixel ready lenses, which means that they don't think that their lenses can resolve 50 megapixels as well as it should. And that's where you run into issue. Right. As far as 4K goes, if you can shoot stills with it, you know, you can film with it and not have much of a problem. They're they're not video lenses, so... 
the the non-cinema lenses, you do have breathing issues, you have focus right. change, you have non-parafocal issues. Uh, a lot of them have clicks on the aperture unless you get some kind of uh, update. But Tokina, with their lenses, this is expensive, but they're kind of becoming the sort of the Rokinon or Semyong right. of zoom lenses. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they're affordable and right. they're sexy and they are something you could actually own as opposed to rent. Well, the other thing with 4K lenses that I've been telling people, and I and I am no expert in terms of resolution because, you know, it 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 you can get really picky about it. But what is what is the major thing that you're really worried about with quote unquote resolution? And that's how sharp is the image when you're looking at it, right? And theoretically, if you're doing cinema and you're doing 24 frames per second, you're going to get motion blur and, you know. A lot of people are really anal about 4K being incredibly super sharp, but yet when you're doing a film, a lot of times what you're looking for is something that's cinematic, and cinematic doesn't necessarily mean tack sharp, right? If so you go tack sharp, you almost start to look fake in terms yeah. of your video quality. So it, it really depends upon what the style of look you want. I mean, a lot of people like to use really old lenses. I know you love talking about old lenses. So are those going to be 4K ready? No, but they may give your film or your project a specific look that you're after. So who cares if it really resolves 600 megapixels or not, right? It's the look that you're after. Well, with the old uh, lenses and old film in general, if you read some of the the director's books, because a lot of them have autobiographies and stuff like that, they'll tell you, like, what did I what did I do to make that shot better? Oh, I wiped the grease off of my forehead and rubbed it around <laughs> the lens a little bit so that everything was a bit soft. And that's gross, but it's also telling you, like, hey, that lens was too sharp and I wanted it to look a little bit more exactly. dreamy or whatever. Exactly. And there's companies, and uh, this is their actual name, so don't get mad at me for cussing but they're called uh, dog shit lenses and their entire business is basically taking old lenses and messing with them so that you get weird stuff out of the lenses that it basically brings out the flaws in them to give you the personality for each of those pieces of glass right. and the old lenses that i use i have some fd lenses that i attach to my panasonic gh4 as well as my sony camera and those old lenses have a look to them they're sometimes they're really soft in the corners or they have a lot of fall off or they do other things that just make them very unique to use and give your shot I don't want to say artistic look, but definitely definitely a different feel and look than you get out of a traditional lens. One of the things that 4K brings to the GH4 is that your images can be tack sharp if you want. And the setting, I think the default setting, is maybe three or four plus on sharpness. And right. you get the footage into your timeline and it's like, Eek. This looks like <laughs> you walked into Best Buy with one of those like crazy settings <laughs> on the crappy TVs that they have, and uh-huh. now everything just looks horribly realistic. Like you can see right. the pores on people's face. You don't want to see the pores on people's face. That's gross. You know, you want to see people in good resolution, but you don't want to like be an inch away from their face and see all of those little imperfections. It turns somebody that's normally beautiful on camera into somebody that's hard to look at because you're just like, oh, you got a mole right there, or oh, you've yeah. got like yeah. a blackhead on your forehead, you know, or something like that. So I actually soften my 4K image when I get it out of the GH4. And I know that's blasphemy, blasphemy for some, but I don't like that look. Right. 
and well, it's gross. That's the thing that's turned me off about a lot of uh, GH4 footage, to be honest with you, is it's too damn sharp. Yeah, and... I mean, it, it looks great on the TV at Best Buy when they're showing you the nature film and the lions and tigers and bears running by, but it doesn't look that great in a movie. Uh, you know, how many actresses have clauses in their contracts that say, you must use a beauty filter for me because I don't want to show wrinkles and stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point with nature. There are times when you do want tack sharp stuff. Yeah, If you're sure. doing like, this mole is emerging from the cave and it's going to see the light for the first time in five <laughs> years to lay its eggs in the soil of the natural thing that's stuff. I don't, you know, I don't know anything about moles. But the point is, is like, that's where you want it to be like really sharp because you want to see all the detail and everything else. But uh-huh. when you're looking at people's faces, it's not very flattering to get that sort yeah. of look. It, it doesn't they're, work a lot of times. They don't show major motion pictures at Best Buy when they're selling you a 4K TV. <laughs> they don't. You go into any TV store and they're showing you nature stuff because that shot sh- super sharp on 4K. Super sharp. Super sharp. sharp. It's, it just, you know, you got to think about all of these things and that's why your readers have you and my readers have me so that we can give them the real god-awful truth about this stuff. Well, and I'm going to be shooting 4K this weekend, and honestly, the people I'm working with, they don't like the sharpness of 4K either. That was their right. first complaint when I showed them some test footage, and so we will be sharpening or softening in post. And yep. it's pretty easy. There's a little button. You go to your effects, and you can basically add a little bit of softness to anything. I even do it in my YouTube videos because, honestly, I'm kind of not that good in the complexion area. But if you smooth it out a little bit, then I don't look too bad, you know? This webcam does a great job of making me look handsome. But you can't you see my awesome. like my beard shave problems here where I get a little rash or something like that. And you don't want to see that. That's gross. No. No. All right. Last thing on the news list here is another Tokina announcement. Uh, this oh. one is filling out their range. Um, basically, Tokina has been doing this thing where they release a lens and then they release the cinema version of that lens the next year. And a lot of people in their zoom range were saying that they're missing kind of that 24 millimeter to 50 area out of their 35 millimeter equivalent film lenses. Well, now they have a 24 to 70 F28 Pro FX XAT-X, actually. And it's, um, yeah, that's a mouthful. But that lens is out now. Or will be out shortly. Actually, it's not out now. Uh, there's no pricing yet on this guy, but it is listed on BNH is coming soon, so you can check that out. When this does come out, it's uh, 15 elements and 11 groups. And in the past, uh, I believe Tokina has had three or four different 24 to 70 millimeter f2.8 lenses over the years. Uh, I have a Minolta version laying around that was a bit soft, but they've come a long ways in their lens development. So this is another filler to kind of. Fill out whatever you're looking for in terms of lenses. Mitch, I, I, I'm guessing you already own a 24 to 70, so then this is not really a thing for you. No, I don't, actually, because I, I, if you go back to my lens list, my whopping five lenses. Like four? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had the 24 to... 105, uh, that 105. was it. All right. So I never felt the need to get to 24 to 70, and that, that sucker was so heavy. I didn't like it. The Canon twenty four to seventy, it's too heavy. Now, I say that, and I have the twenty, the seventy to two ten, which is a monster lens in terms of weight. Yeah. But anyway, so um, 
if if the price is decent on this, it, I, it's unfortunate we don't have pricing information. But uh, well, one of the things that's uh, noticeably absent about this is that it doesn't have any sort of stabilization built in. Right. What seems to be the new trend is to bring out a lens that you've already had in your collection, but to add image stabilization. In the case of Tamron, they've been adding a vibration control, which is their flavor of image stabilization to their lenses. And that's what really made the Tamron 24-70 really popular. It was slightly sharper than the Canon original 24-70, a little less sharp than their 24-70 Mark II, and it came in at a price range of $1,000. I think retail was $1,200 initially, and now it's down to like $899. And when you look at a, I think the 24 to 70 Mark II is somewhere in the range of $1,800. So $1,800 versus $800, and it's only slightly less sharp, and it has vibration control in it. That's what makes it a really sexy buy. If uh, this lens comes out in a cinema version, I think it'll be popular. But in this particular release, if it's anywhere above the price of Tamron's offering, it almost seems like Tamron would be a better way to go. Yeah. The other thing they do implement in this, and I'm sorry, Mitch, I didn't mean to cut you off, but they implement that stupid thing where you have to click down to go to manual focus. That is not my favorite way of having focus control on your lens. Uh, If you've used any of the other lenses, you can have that full-time manual control while using autofocus. But with Tokina, a lot of their lenses, they're 11 to 16 and so on, they have to, you have to actually click down the focus ring from the auto to manual mode so that it engages so that you can actually move the lens around. And this one is no exception. That sounds like a hokey way of doing it. Yeah, have you ever used that? You actually... No. Okay, no, so I... the focus ring itself is on the top of the lens, and it actually clicks down about a quarter inch. And you actually, if you look on the picture here, you'll see that right. there's a little line that says autofocus, and then there's an MF line. So you actually oh. click the, that portion down to where it's lined up with the MF, which is manual focus. And you can leave that engaged while you have autofocus engaged. But if you do, it turns the whole thing, and if you hold on to it, you can strip the gears out or mess it up. So that's an issue. Uh, It works, but it is. It's hokey, and it's a little bit frustrating because you're used to other lenses, so then you reach over to focus, and it doesn't do anything at all. It just spins. And then you click it, and you forget that you're in autofocus, and then you half-press to focus, and then you're trying to, like, do a little bit of correction, and now you're like, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, it's a really easy way. Well, not extremely easy, but an easy enough way to reach over and just like ruin a lens really fast. Yeah, I so. Do you remember those old lenses that you that were push pull to focus? Oh yes, yes. The I a lot of the of trash those. can size lenses, the yeah. giant coffee cups. Uh, yeah. Minolta had some. Canon in their FD series had several, and they had all the counts actually on the barrel all the way right. out, and so you right. just and they, yeah, yeah. They were like, they were oh man. They were so long by the time you got to, like, maximum yeah. focal length. I think I had a Tamron like that. Ugh. I don't have it anymore. Yeah, those those are different because you were zooming in and out, and you could actually ram into something in front of you if you weren't paying attention. Great <laughs> yeah. way to it was bad. fix bad. your element. Bad idea. Bad. And talk about, like, holding focus, man. Th- those breathe like nobody's business. You, you're, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. Nope, nope, shoot, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. Nope. Yep. 
All right, moving on down the line. Last thing on our list is the discussion topics here. I notice you've got a note added, so I'm just going to default to you here. Yay, I get to do something because I thought ahead. Last week I was totally clueless, and this week I actually thought ahead. I I don't know if you've seen this, and this is a photography thing, but Vincent LaFerre's got a new project, and uh, the first part of it that he released is called Gotham 7.5K. I don't know exactly where the 7.5K comes from, but it's it's a it's different in that he's shooting New York City at night. Okay, everybody's done there, been there, done that, but he's taking a helicopter up to like either maybe seven and a half thousand feet or 10,000 feet way up and taking these astronomical kind of views of New York City. Uh, he did do a tilt shift lens for some of them. So some of them are kind of like, you know, the toy look. Okay. Uh, but it's, I, I found them very fascinating. He's just released one with Las Vegas. So there's two links in the show notes for New York City and Las Vegas. Uh, the New York one he published a blog post not long afterwards that he has gotten more attention from this than the release of the short Reverie and the Movi release, which he was involved in, combined. He is, there are so many people really excited about these images, and if you go look them, they're really kind of cool. So you're used to seeing New York maybe from a low angle or a, just a couple of thousand feet up, but these are way up there. And they're just fascinating. Uh, I really enjoyed looking at these. I think you guys will, if you spend a couple of minutes, go in and have a look. They're awesome images. I saw the New York one show up on Reddit. And again, that's r slash DSLR if you want to interact with us. But uh, I did not see the Las Vegas one. It just came out last uh, early this week, so it's brand new. That sounds pretty sexy. I'll have to check that out. And they're just flyovers, huh? It's like... Right. Do you have to yeah. wear a, a mask or have any kind of oxygen to go up that high, or what do they do exactly? They don't, uh, it, although it's getting pretty close. Uh, I, and the way Vincent describes it, too, the, the, uh, if you look at the New York Post, we actually posted this on Planet5D.com a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the, he actually shot some video as they were doing the project. So it's it's like you know crazy hanging out of a helicopter at 10,000 feet. It's like... Holy crap, but uh, he talks in the, the Las Vegas one about the the helicopter pilot describing how crazy it is. He's never done anything that high in a helicopter before, so he was he was kind of fascinated by the whole thing. And the Las Vegas one, Vincent did a wide-angle one, so there's like desert to the sides. It's just black, of oh, course, wow. but... Uh, so it's it's this really cool image, and he's, he talks about how... You know, it's just like this shining diamonds in the, in the middle of this blank black space. And it's just a fascinating way of looking at this. And they're going to be going to several different cities in Europe in the next couple of months. It's become this big thing. And Vincent's now doing this whole project and they've gotten sponsors and blah, blah, blah. So Man, have a look. Who would have thought it's just renting cool. a helicopter and going up higher than most people have and shooting something would be the secret sauce to make everybody excited? To answer your question, I just ran into the blurb. He says, if if we had gone up a few more thousand feet, around 11,000 to 12,000, we would have needed oxygen masks. So they're just below that kind of level. But these 
I'm I'm fascinated. I spent quite a few minutes just looking at these and have a look. They're cool. And now you got me kind of excited about it. I sort of want to check those out. Um, I will definitely post that. Well, actually, they're in the show notes. And now, guys, I'm going to be a little bit more on task here and see all these numbers written down. These are when we said stuff. So in the show notes for the video podcast, if you'd like to click through to different discussion topics, you can actually go to the crotch bar below and click on those once I get them updated and you'll be able to go through stuff like that. So this discussion has been noted on the thing and you requested it i'm doing it thanks for making me do more work guys thanks yeah way to go people i don't have actually any discussion topics since i kind of rushed through the news yesterday when i was writing the show notes but for the pick of the week what do you got oh that was my pick of the week oh that was your pick of the week (laughs) oh i skipped down so his pick of the week was that and i need a pick (laughs) of the week here and i'm gonna go with this guy right in front of me that's also why i have this set aside this is the omelite adapter for the sony a7s and it's a canon to sony adapter this is about $100, way, way cheaper than the Metabones adapter. And I've used both the Metabones adapter as well as this adapter. And honestly, they both focus just as poorly with Canon lenses. Oh, that's, that was going to be my question. Yeah, there's no benefit to this as far as speedier focus. But the benefit is the price. Uh, yeah. As opposed to paying four or $500, you can pay $100 and basically get the same performance. So don't go out of your way to spend a bunch of money on a EF2 E-mount adapter. Just go get one of the cheap ones. You'll be in good shape, and it'll save you enough money to purchase this 85mm F1.4 that I have on here right now. So that's my pick. Uh, one thing to note, though, and not to discourage Metabones at all, is if you are buying one of the speed booster systems, don't cheap out and get one of the generic ones. Get the Metabones one because they do use better quality lens elements than their competitors. Uh, that's where they really shine, and their speed booster for the GH4 that I use with my Canon lenses does a great job. It's, it's really good with the image quality coming through that. It actually makes it... I honestly, it seems like it's a little bit better than the lenses natively on a Canon camera. I might be wrong on that, but it seems as though that's the case. Um, it can't be. You're adding more glass. There's no way it can be better. Well, I think there's actually, okay, so we're going a little bit long here, but I'm going to finish this one up. If you think about it in terms of what you're doing, so you have an image coming in, right? And it's a big image. And you're actually magnifying that image by making it smaller. So as opposed to getting softer as it goes through, like an expander is what you would normally think of. So if you use like your 2X extender for a Canon camera and you put that onto your uh, 70 to 200, you've gotten more reach. But now your image is a little bit less good and you have a little bit less uh, light going into the camera because it's another element. But because instead of making the image bigger, you're making it smaller, you're actually focusing the light down, and it kind of works in the same way that you use a magnifying glass. If you've ever started something on fire with a magnifying glass, if you have it high enough, that's just blurred light on the ground. But as you get to the right focal point, now you have a super concentrated little ball of light that's really hitting that point and starts it on fire. Well, this is, doesn't start your camera on fire. That doesn't happen, <laughs> yeah. but it does focus all that light down into a higher concentrated area and it's condensing the image from your lens 
to the sensor size. So if there was any imperfections in the lens to begin with, you sort of, I don't want to say lose them, but it somewhat masks them as it brings the image down to a smaller resolution. So when you're you were talking about 4K ready lenses, well, really what you're ending up with with uh, an adapter like this with the speed booster on a GH4 is you're taking this lens and you're shrinking down the image that's coming out of it. And so if there were perfections, those perfect imperfections are even smaller than they were originally and even less noticeable than right. now it's I'm not- I'm kind of like given the uh explain it like I'm a fifth grader version of this so that's 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 perfectly fine i mean to some degree it's sort of like taking a 4k image and making it 1080 right yes exactly yeah so there are scientific reasons why the speed boosters may not be perfect but if it looks okay do it i like it i will not get into a resolution argument with it (laughs) but i think it's pretty good so on that note where can people find you mitch uh, there's a website called planet5d.com, which is my home base. I also have planetmitch.com with some information about other projects I'm working on, if you're curious. And you can find me over at dslrfilmnoob.com. This podcast is available on iTunes as well as the video format under One Lone Dork on YouTube, or just search and, DSLR Film Noob. And don't forget, please, if you like what we're doing, rate us in iTunes. DJ would really appreciate it. Uh Tell your friends about it, tweet it, do all those fancy social things because that really helps get the word out. Thank you. And one last thing, you can find us on Reddit if you'd like to interact with me directly. That is reddit.com slash r slash dslr. You'll find the show popping up there as well as me kind of hanging out in the background, answering questions for people who have problems with things. On that note, this concludes another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 